Sunday, July 2nd, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. With the war raging in Ukraine and U.S. support ongoing, the conflict is starting to show divides in the Republican primary. And for my part, uh, we'll continue to do everything in our power to make sure that we provide the Ukrainian military with the support they need. And today is Independence Day, or so one founding father believed. We'll look at how and why D.C. celebrates the 4th. There's all these old Russian military, you know, themes and so on and so forth. That doesn't quite comport with the 4th of July. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. If you're running for president, chances are this time of year you'll be spotted in New Hampshire or Iowa. But former Vice President Mike Pence spent part of this week about 4,500 miles away from the first in a nation primary to make a surprise visit to Ukraine in a tour of the war-torn country with President Volodymyr Zelensky. For my part, uh, we'll continue to do everything in our power to make sure that we provide the Ukrainian military with the support they need until they repel the Russian invasion and restore the sovereignty of this country. Pence says Ukraine's success is vital to U.S. national security and the security of the free world. Because we'll make it clear to Russia, to China, and to any other nations in the world that would seek to redraw international lines by force, that the free world will not stand for it. The free world will stand together for freedom. And it's my great honor to help deliver that message here in Ukraine today. Pence's visit sets him apart from many of his Republican rivals who have not struck, in some cases, as strong a tone on U.S. support and taxpayer dollars for Ukraine. But as the war in Ukraine rages on and funding continues to have bipartisan support in Congress, could the future of the U.S. role become a bigger issue on the campaign trail? That is where we start with Fox News Radio political analyst Josh Crossauer. Well, you are hearing candidates make statements about the, I mean, right now there's not a whole lot of news when it comes to Ukraine. There's a lot of news out of Russia and uh, the attempted mutiny or coup or however you want to describe it over the weekend. I think we're all watching and waiting the state of play with the Ukrainian counteroffensive. And you have seen folks like Nikki Haley and Mike Pence, some of the more traditional Republicans, Chris Christie in that mix, mm-hmm. have put out statements or have made comments uh, contrasting their views on foreign policy and on Ukraine in particular with that of someone like a Trump or to a lesser extent, Ron DeSantis. Uh, but, you know, generally you don't see foreign policy at the top of the list of, of voters. And, and that's why you're not maybe seeing uh, every day, uh, you know, any, any of these Republican candidates talking about what's going on in Ukraine. It's generally about the economy or wokeness in the case of the Republican primary, uh, the culture war fights, not Ukraine. And uh, I think that is generally where where, where things have always been politically, Jared, that foreign policy, unless there's a war where American servicemen are are facing life and death situations, foreign policy never ranks at the top of most voters' priorities. You're right, it doesn't. And I guess what I was curious about is, you know, if, if this was the type of event, right? I mean, you have a war in continental Europe, um, really to this degree for the first time since the end of World War II. Um, and there seems to be, at least maybe more so on the Republican side of the aisle than the Democratic side of the aisle, uh, this sort of debate about what the U.S. Uh, involvement and the U.S. investment 
ought to be. Is that something that candidates are going to start maybe contrasting themselves with uh, on that issue of sort of the sustainability of, of military assistance, military aid, NATO support to Ukraine? You have two candidates, the two front-running candidates and Trump and DeSantis, taking distinctly different views about America's role in the world, uh, its role in, in continuing, to, continuing to help the Ukrainians by funding the, their military efforts against Russia. They, they, Trump certainly and DeSantis, again, to a lesser extent, have raised questions or raised some skepticism, uh, to put it mildly, about our current administration's efforts, uh, along with our Western allies against Russia. Which is absolutely a change in, I mean, it, it, your heads can spin sometimes when you hear the rhetoric from a Trump or even like a Vivek Ramaswamy who has emerged in that second tier of candidates, someone who has made some eyebrow raising comments about Ukraine in recent weeks. So, yeah, like there is this, there is a faction of the Republican Party. It's not very numerous in the Senate. There's a little bit more uh, vocal skepticism of, 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 of an aggressive foreign policy in the House. But yeah, you're hearing more voices that are skeptical of certainly funding the efforts in Ukraine and into a more extreme effort attacking Zelensky and, and almost siding with Vladimir Putin and Russia. So this is something as someone who grew up uh, with the Republican Party almost always uh, in, in the post-war generation being the party of hawkishness uh, year after year, election after election. That's changed where Democrats are getting a little bit more hawkish. And certainly as Biden is leading the effort uh, against Russia, he is seen his party become more muscular and more outspoken on foreign affairs. And conversely, you're seeing this element of the Republican Party led by Trump uh, that is uh, anti uh, sort of the traditional uh, American role in the world, defending allies, defending democratic countries, uh, Western democracies. Uh, and uh, that's that's a real shift. And we'll see where that goes in the presidential race. If Trump wins the Republican nomination, that'll be a big argument, a big divide in the general election. Yeah, I, I think it's maybe a chicken or an egg kind of argument, whether uh, polls uh, follow, you know, policy or, or policy follows polls as far as proposals from politicians go. But where where is the American public so far on, um, you know, let's say that the Biden plan here, um, which has a lot of bipartisan support, but, but the idea of, you know, unwavering U.S. support, unwavering commitment these, um, you know, continuous um, aid packages as it relates to the sort of defense and, and what Ukraine needs. Does that still remain largely popular or are some of these Republican candidates in particular uh, and Republican members of Congress kind of picking up on a sentiment they may be seeing in the polls and be hearing about when they go back home? So overall, overall, among the overall American public, there's general support for continuing to fund Ukraine support Ukraine. Now, there has been a drop-off since the war began in February of 2022, when it was almost almost unanimous, you know, 80% mm -hmm. plus American. And then now that number is is declining, and it's more partisan. You know, you, the if you look at the overall polling out there, Republicans are divided. There's actually, I, I would say it's almost 50-50 among mm -hmm. Republicans maintain that more traditional uh, hawkish posture, those who kind of adopt the Trump view, that we should end the war in when he, if he's president, 24 hours, we're going to have a negotiation and that's it. And and basically having that very uh, isolationist or, or, or nat national conservative view of the world. Um, so it's 50, the Republicans have, have found themselves more divided. 
overall, there is still strong support. And I will note that in the, in the most recent polls, and I haven't been that many, but I think there have been a couple polls since what happened over the weekend in Russia, there's been something of an uptick in support for Ukraine since the, mm-hmm. the, the questions about Putin's hold on power in Russia. So that's something to watch going forward. If Russia, there's been a debate over whether the U.S. is going to blink first and whether, uh, you know, frustration about the, the slowness of the war still going on could actually end up electing Trump in 2024, and that could change the American posture, the Western posture, or if Putin can't hang on because he's losing the war. He's lost so many troops, and having these internal divisions come into the forefront. So I think this would have been a long-time staring match when you look at the big political picture internationally, and there's been worry on the American side that maybe voters get impatient, and then they could vote out Biden and vote in more uh, isolationist Republicans Right now, it looks like the opposite is happening, where Russia is facing some real real internal challenges in their own system. Do we learn anything about, uh, you know, this sort of NATO commitment, which so far has not shown, um, at least publicly, um, any divisions, right? Do, do you see, you know, as you look at elections in Europe, and, and they have elections, it seems like a lot more frequently than we do, but uh, the types of, of candidates that are winning seats uh, abroad, does that tell us anything about... Uh, I guess, internationally, the sustainability of, of uh, this Ukrainian uh, aid in humanitarian effort? I mean, as someone who studies politics, I, I always pay close election to the results of elections in the leading Western European countries. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a moment, too, in those countries where ex- extremes on both the left and the right uh, in many of those countries really uh, showed, showed power. I mean, there were a lot of sort of third party or, or outside movements that Steam, anti-establishment movements along the lines of Trump and the MAGA movement. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't want to make any broad pronouncements. It seems like a lot of that is, has, has been muted in recent months. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there is strong support in most of the NATO countries. Maybe Hungary is an exception. Maybe some France is always kind of fickle, um, especially with Macron. He's always trying to throw some some peace agreement in, in dipl- diplomacy out in the open. But you know, certainly the Eastern European countries, the Poland, uh, the Baltic states, they have been very, very much supportive of our war efforts because they're they're on the front lines in, in many ways. If if Russia wins the war, they're they're a threat. They're literally being threatened. Um, so there's a lot of support in Poland certainly and other neighboring countries. You know, in the Western countries, France, Germany in particular, that th- th- those are key states. Generally, there's been widespread support, but those are certainly the ones to watch when you look at the international politics. Let me finish w- with this and kind of where we started. Um, you know, as this Republican race starts to emerge and, and starts to take shape and, and maybe gets a, a better, you know, winnowing down of, of candidates from the 12 or 13 who are in the race as we speak, um, does that let you know how big an issue Ukraine and foreign policy maybe at large will be versus other issues in the general election? Because obviously, regardless of who wins the Republican nomination, there's going to be some deep divisions with uh, President Biden on domestic policy, right, on on the economy, on spending, on, you know, how the federal government, um, uh, what the role of the federal government is, the culture wars, all of that stuff you talked about, right? There, there are going to be, it doesn't matter which Republican wins, that there are going to be a ton of disagreements, but that might not be the case on foreign policy. So th- will that sort of tell us who wins the Republican race, how important foreign policy plays in in the upcoming election? On the side of President Biden, foreign policy, his leadership skills in, in, in managing the war against Russia, that that, that will come up. I, I, like I said, foreign policy itself, the details of 
uh, the conflicts, uh, the day-to-day updates on what's going on on the front lines. That the vot- voters, most Americans, aren't following that that uh, so closely right now. Um, but like Biden is facing a lot of questions, Jared, about his age and his 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 health and his ability to be commander in chief. So I would imagine his political team is using his management of the war in Ukraine, his leadership uh, in terms of heading that Western alliance against Russia as a big selling point for that. This guy is really good to go for another four years. I I think it goes beyond the details of foreign policy, certainly for this White House. And and Jared, for the Republicans, I think it really does depend on who they end up nominating. Uh, Mm -hmm. Trump would have a abjectly different view about russia and ukraine than biden and certainly I mean, he has said that he thinks he could negotiate a, a, a peace settlement in, in a day well and jared i mean it, it, needless to say jared trump's own history with you know with you know comments on with, with russia and with putin yeah. in helsinki you know all the all the baggage all the attacks in the past that would be a big issue i would imagine if it was if it was trump and you could call that foreign policy you could call that a whole lot of things but russia and handling of, of you know fighting against russia would probably be a big deal in a Biden-Trump race. DeSantis, I think there would be a difference. I think DeSantis is fully edging for the more, you know, um, you know, MAGA side of the party on foreign policy. I don't think it would be quite as stark if it was against Trump and Biden, but I think that would be a contrast on foreign policy. And look, everyone else, Jared, if you're talking about Haley or Scott or pretty pretty much everyone else, Vivek Ramaswamy, all the other Republicans in the mix, I think are, are general traditionalists on foreign policy, and they probably agree with a whole lot of what Biden is doing. I think their criticism is that he's not being tough enough, that he's not spending enough, enough money on enough weapon systems and enough military uh, uh, effort, the military funding quickly enough. Um, so I think they, they, they'd be going at any criticism on the opposite side, that uh, he needs to be more aggressive. Let's finish. I do one more unrelated to Ukraine, and that is just is now we are um, – Getting into July, uh, which is obviously one month before August, that's the, the seg I'm going to use, and, and the first Republican debate. Um, what's your expectation? One, I mean, do you think the full field shows up? Um, and if so, what does that look like? Well, if you believe some of the news stories, Jared, that have been uh, <laughs> Sounds like President Trump may be not really interested in That's debating. right. That's right. I mean, look, look, it's understandable in, in many strategic ways because he's up by about 30 points against Ron yeah. DeSantis and everyone else by more. And why, so, you know, I think the way the Trump campaign sees it, uh, why debate? Why why subject yourself to candidates that are losing badly to you? There's only uh, you only have you only have uh, things to lose. And that makes sense. And I, so I think the odds are that Trump may not show up at that first Fox debate in August. I hope he does. I, I think it would make for great. TV, it would make for great uh, debating. There are there are a lot we've just been talking about some of these. Big yeah, I mean, there are differences, lives. right? That, that should be talked about. There are real yeah. differences between candidates within the Republican Party. We're not just talking about political strategies. We're talking about ideological differences mm-hmm. between someone like Trump and between a lot of the other people that are going to be on that on that stage. So, you know, I think we, we'd be missing out if Trump doesn't doesn't show up. But look, I think that that's the direction we're headed. And there's also a question if, if you're a Chris Christie. Um, maybe an Ace Hutchinson. The RNC has rules that you have to support the Republican nominee, I believe, to qualify yes. for that debate yeah. stage. And there's a little bit of, the, of a dispute whether Christie, who actually I, I talked to him uh, a couple months ago before he jumped in the race, and he said to Axios, no, no way he's going to be endorsing Trump in the general election. Yeah. But there's yeah. going to be a well, I mean, and I think the there's questions about whether or not Trump would sign such a pledge. 
I think it's less than a pledge and more. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact a that promise, there's a, whatever we call it. Yeah. Right. The fact that Christie went on record saying he's not supporting Trump. Yeah. I mean, the RNC then has to decide whether that would qualify. Well, I will be there uh, regardless of, of who else is there. I believe you will be as well. And so um, we'll certainly see each other and, and we'll talk before then. But appreciate you uh, helping us walk through the foreign policy side of uh, the presidential politics and uh, have a, a, a restful and a happy uh, July 4th and a happy Independence Day. Thanks, Jared. We'll talk soon. If John Adams had his way, the Independence Day parade would have been today. As we gear up for the 4th of July and wish the United States a happy 247th birthday here in Washington, the U.S. Capitol is putting its finishing touches on a big party. For decades, the west front of the U.S. Capitol, the same spot where millions gather for a president's inauguration, has been the site of a concert, performances, and of course, one of the finest fireworks shows in the country. Fox News senior congressional correspondent Chad Pergram looks back at the history of how D.C. is celebrated and why the U.S. celebrates when it does. It, it kind of cuts both ways. Some love to come back here for the 4th of July. They're usually out of session. And sometimes, depending on how the 4th of July falls, you know, they might be back in session on the 5th or the 6th sometimes. Mm-hmm. The way the holiday falls right now, it's right in the middle of this two-week recess. So probably fewer members here for the 4th of July this year. But what has historically happened is they love to come to the big 4th of July concert, a capital 4th, as it's called. Yes. They started doing these, oh, you know, I think it was in the 1970s. And they had a conductor who was from Eastern Europe. And, and frankly, and this is kind of ironic now, considering what's going on with Russia, but, you know, there's a lot of Eastern Europe and Russian composers, and they would play kind of a classical music concert, which doesn't have a lot to do with the United States. And it was all these old Russian military you know, themes and so on and so forth. That doesn't quite comport with the 4th of July. Uh, to say nothing at the time period, you know, we were in this fight, the Cold War, with the Soviet Union. So some years later, uh, they kind of got, to, they kind of modified this program. It was well attended, even so, and the fact that they would have the big fireworks display and a lot of people would come to watch. Obviously, they would play the 1812 Overture, you know, which is significant in this, and light off the fireworks there. But Eric Kunzel was the conductor of the Cincinnati Pops and one of the best known composers of pop classical music, you know, starting in the 70s and the 1980s and 1990s. Eric Kunzel kind of succeeded Arthur Fiedler, uh, who was the longtime conductor of the Boston Pops and did a bunch of records that like he would have, you know, a Star Wars theme. Or I remember I interviewed him in 1989. It was right after the first Batman movie came out. And they did the Batman suite around Halloween for the Cincinnati Pops. And so he had been recruited to come and conduct the National Symphony here in Washington and did so for many years. And he kind of transformed that concert into what we think of today, this big patriotic celebration. You know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, gather on the National Mall to see the fireworks. There's a moment that I always remember when the weather's good. When they get toward the end of the performance, they've set off all these fireworks, Jared, and you just see this nebula of smoke, you know, yeah. down the National Mall. You're looking toward the Capitol. You're looking toward the Lincoln Memorial or the Washington Monument, and you can't see anything. And it's right, you know, when they've kind of hit that pinnacle with the, uh, with the uh, 1812 overture. And so, you know, one year I talked to Kunzel 
And, you know, they would always conduct it out front on the west front of the Capitol. And he had conducted the Cincinnati Pops in Beijing for the opening ceremonies of the Olympics in 2008. And I said, you know, what's the best place to conduct, you know, to have a performance? And he said, right here. And he turned around and pointed to the Capitol and held his arms out. And he said, this is the best performance space, the best amphitheater in the world. And, you know, he really kind of embraced the way they would perform this concert. And there was something, and I remember after he died, you know, he had cancer and he died, you know, about 10, 12 years ago, about 12 years ago, I think it was. It was an amazing moment where he would go through toward the end of the concert and he would also do this. And they still do this tradition today uh, with the Memorial Day concert and, and this concert. And they recognize all the branches of the armed mm-hmm. services. And it's the Marines, the Air Force, and they, they play the the theme for each uh, each branch of the service. And everybody who is a member or a retired member of that service branch stands up and salutes. And it's just really quite moving. And they'll do that again with the concert this year. Uh, yeah, but I mean, uh, a I've lot of members. It's amazing yeah. to be out there. I've it seen really it. is. Should we give away the state secret, though, that if you want to go to that without the huge crowds, you can usually get a pretty good sense of the show the day before. That's right. That's right. They do it. They do a dress <laughs> rehearsal the day before. I don't know if we should be giving they that away. They certainly do that with a Memorial Day concert. There are some stops and starts. Uh, yeah. They do bring in these big figures. I remember some years ago, the Broadway star Kelly O'Hara was performing. Mm-hmm. And I remember during the dress rehearsal, this woman came out and was just fabulous. And I realized after a few minutes, I said, that's not Kelly O'Hara. Or I remember they would have, you know, during the dress rehearsal, they would have Colin Powell, the former chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, would come out and deliver remarks. And actually, Colin Powell wasn't there and somebody else came out and somebody said, well, that's not Colin Powell. I said, well, this is just the dress rehearsal. He can't be here tonight. He'll be here tomorrow. You know, a few other things where they've actually had, you know, you got to remember this is summer where they've had like a tornado warning and they had to evacuate the National Mall and get everybody inside the Capitol out of there because of the concert. And then I think one year what they did, because they televised this on PBS, is they actually had been playing a tape version and right where they were about to come back in and do it live. And Eric Kunzel told me the timing was impeccable and they came right back in and they switched over and they began playing. And it was like if you were watching at home. You never would have known anything was different. I remember watching like that. They had to put like on the screen, like not the fireworks from right now. Or like they had to like be clear that like the, the fireworks had to be postponed. Or so I think there was weather, right? right? Like lightning. Or right. Something. Let me right. ask this because exactly. I was unaware of this until I sat down to do some research here. Congress did not make Independence Day any sort of like day off. It says in 1870, it was an unpaid holiday for federal employees. It was not until 1938 that Congress allowed federal, made it a federal holiday. We have to remember some of these holidays, these federal holidays, it's derived from the labor movement, you know, certainly in the early to mid 20th century and federal workers, the growth of the federal workforce, and then a lot of private companies and schools and state governments taking nods from the federal government as to what is a holiday. We have a new one now that obviously is celebrated. Uh, We were off a couple of Mondays ago Mm -hmm. for Juneteenth. You know, that's a relatively new one. But you're right. uh, You know, there's been some controversy over the years about the date and which one they should celebrate, Jared. Uh, The 4th of July, which, of course, everybody celebrates. Uh, There will not be a dress rehearsal on July 2nd. They might be doing some rehearsing, putting up the stage, some other things like that. Yeah, much to the the, the, uh, dismay of uh, John Adams. That's right. And the whole idea was they had written up the Declaration of Independence. 
They mm -hmm. had taken this around uh, throughout the course of the summer. You know, if you go into uh, uh, the Capitol Rotunda, you'll see the famous portrait there of everybody signing it in Philadelphia. The little dirty secret there is that not everybody signed that day. Uh, it took them, you know, till later in the in the summer to get everybody to sign. They yeah, all it was had like their it went until like August, right? Yeah, it was late August. Yeah, it, it was getting toward <laughs> fall when they finally got everybody uh, to, to to sign. And so what happened? was they had written the declaration and they passed it around and they took it around to be printed, you know, and, and they, they wanted multiple copies. And there's no printer in those days, but the idea that they're going to do this in longhand, so that was the printing of it. And so Adams, as you say, and others thought that the big day that would be remembered would be the 2nd of July. It wasn't. The guy didn't get around to printing it until the 4th. And so the rest is history. We celebrate on the 4th and not the 2nd, even though Adams thought and said, some pretty amazing things, Jared, right about the, the 2nd of July. I said that it should be a, the most memorable epoch in the history of America. I am apt to believe it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the Great Anniversary Festival and suggested that we commemorate it, as we do, with pomp and parade and games and sports and guns and bells and bonfire. We do all of that. Illuminations, he said, which is probably fireworks. Um, right, exactly. But we're doing it two days I, it, later, though notably... This was sort of a dispute between John Adams and, and um, uh, 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 Thomas Jefferson. They, they famously had a lot of disputes. They both died on July 4th. Yes, uh, yes, uh, in 1826, <laughs> you know, within hours of each other. And the whole thing was, is you know, I, and, and so, you know, Jefferson had passed away and Adams is on his deathbed. And obviously there's no Twitter or anything in 1826. <laughs> and he famously, perhaps apocryphally, uh, declared on his deathbed, his last words purportedly were, Jefferson lives, which is yes. not, in fact, the case because they both died. <laughs> I mean, th that's just amazing to have, you know, two early presidents, two founding fathers, two rivals, uh, you know, who died both on the 4th of July. Uh, maybe it should have been the 2nd of July, but the same day, the same year. That's astonishing, really. I'll finish with this bit of trivia. Who's the only president to have been born on the 4th of July? Hmm. I don't know the answer to that question, Jared. Calvin Coolidge. Aha, uh -huh, Silent Cow. July 4th, 1872. So. Any, any born on the 2nd of July? <laughs> See, I don't know, because that wouldn't be something, because Adams lost it, the debate. <laughs> yes, yes. You, you know, some people said to me that they thought, they actually thought that, what, that it should be like a, a law or Congress should pass a resolution that, uh, you know, Major League Baseball is in fact played on the 4th of July. Uh, there have been times where just the way the schedule has worked out or it's a Monday or mm. a Thursday or a travel team where some teams are off. But for the record, this year, my streaking Cincinnati Reds will be in town playing the Washington Nationals at Nats and Park. That is always an early game. Yes. 11 o'clock. I will be. Yeah. There. It's a great tradition. 11 a.m. They play baseball here in the district and you stick around for the fireworks. It's a lot of fun. And, Chad, listen, I hope you have a great 2nd of July, great 3rd of July, and a great 4th of July, and we'll, we'll talk next week. Of course. Thank you. That will do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington podcast. Next week, there's a lot of talk from House Republicans about impeachment, resolutions to impeach President Biden, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, and Attorney General Merrick Garland. A couple of lawmakers are also looking to expunge the two impeachments of former President Trump. Our senior congressional correspondent, Chad Pergram, will look at those efforts and the politics behind them. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington.
stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.